0: About Jesus Christ, about the proclamation through word and deed of who Jesus Christ is. And throughout Mark's gospel, we are seeing how Mark is presenting to us the true dignity and glory of Jesus Christ. Reflecting what Paul would later say in Colossians 1:28, we proclaim him. We may not realize how absolutely unique this is in the history of the world's religions. If, for example, uh, you take Islam, according to Islam, uh, Muhammad was born in 570 A.D., and in the year 610, while meditating outside of Mecca and the hills, he began to receive visions from the angel Gabriel, which continued from 610 A.D. to 632 A.D., in which today comprise the 114 chapters of the Quran, But by Islam's own admission, this is not being polemical, by their own admission, it could easily have happened to some other Arabian man who went outside to the hills of Mecca and if Gabriel had chosen to reveal the surahs or the chapters to, to that person, Islam could have arisen exactly the same way as it is today. It's also true for Buddhism. Uh, Buddhism claims that uh, Siddhartha Gautama in the 5th century BC received revelations as he meditated under the famous Bodhi tree, and that began the beginning of the Dharma of Buddhism. But by Buddha's own account, uh, there was no particular reason why that person was chosen over another. In fact, uh, the Mahayana Buddhists believe that they've been thousands of Buddhist uh, Buddhas over the years. And one of the great sayings of Zen Buddhism is, if you should meet the Buddha on the road, you should kill him. That's a great Zen saying, isn't it? Nothing quite like that in Christianity. <laughs> but the point being that uh, the, the actual historicity of the Buddha is not that important. What matters is the Dharma, the teaching of the Buddha. It would be like saying, if you have this from the mount, who cares who taught it? But this is not the case with Christianity. If I had lived in the first century and I had a mother named Mary, a father named Joseph, if I had been a pretty good carpenter and I had begun to teach things and taught all the exact same things that Jesus did, if I had uttered all the great oracles, the Son of the Mount, and managed to heal a few people and even managed to run afoul of the Roman authorities and they nailed me between two crosses, there would be no Christianity. Christianity is about who Jesus Christ is. And it's that central fact from which all the other great treasures which come to us in the New Testament flow. And so Mark is bringing this out for us in a very powerful way. And in this particular uh, pericope, which is actually a lengthy one, which interweaves two very interesting narratives. In this passage, we have the story of a very well-known man, Jairus, an archon, or a synagogue ruler, And Jairus is a person that we would, you know, step back. Wow, Jairus is here. You know, he's well known, he's named, he's biographied, he has title, he has position, he has authority, he has everything one would want in the ancient world. And you find in the same pericope, the same passage, that a woman who goes unnamed in this passage. She has no biography that we know of. She has no title, no position. She has no, no one uh, mentioning her rank or any kind of titles that she may have. And yet the, both of these people need Jesus. and It's a great frame of the whole human race, isn't it? From the high and the lofty, the title, of the biography, to the people that are marginalized and no one knows about or cares about, all intersect in their need for Jesus Christ. And so what a great passage this is. It begins in the 21st verse of Christ returning back across the lake we saw last time. Last time was last semester. Uh, This is the ninth part of this series, by the way. I will finish before the Lord returns. (laughs) But uh, he comes back across the lake, and he meets Jairus, who asks him to, to come and heal his daughter, and so Jesus uh, makes his way uh, on his way to Jairus' house. And on the way, isn't it great that Jesus' life models not only here but throughout his ministry the capacity to be interrupted? It's a really an amazing capacity, that one that we and I speak for myself, a capacity that I can just grow in. To learn to be interrupted and let my schedule like sometimes get changed. Because uh, we go through life, we have our schedule, our patterns, our plans, and, and Christ allows it to be interrupted. And in this cr- crowd, this pressing crowd, we have this woman, and you realize that this woman we're told is not simply a woman that's suffering, but the implications of this particular ailment she's suffering from ongoing bleeding. We don't know precisely what her ailment was, but it. Understand, of course, from the Jewish perspective, ritually speaking, that makes her perpetually unclean from the Jewish point of view. That means, therefore, that this woman had no access to the temple. She could not come and talk to a priest. She could not go to the temple. She could not engage in worship. She could not offer a sacrifice. She had no access to God, temple, worship, or healing. She would, what we would not, not a shut in, she is a shut out. And this woman is making her way, and in this crowd, she sees Jesus. Now, isn't it amazing? And of course, Mark has already unveiled this several times in in his gospel, but that Jesus embodies all of the great verities of the old covenant. So even though this woman could not go to the temple, praise God, in Jesus Christ, the temple is coming to her. And that in itself is one of the great testimonies to the Christian gospel. If the old paradigm was in some broad sense, people streaming to Jerusalem, streaming to the temple for healing, for hope, for forgiveness, the gospel is now about the people of God bringing the temple of God and all of its verities to the ends of the earth. We are, in Christ, a mobile temple. We're making the gospel mobile. We're bringing it out uh, virally into the world through, through God's grace and His power. So the temple and forgiveness, He is the high priest. He is the temple. He is the sacrifice. All of that is embodied in Jesus Christ. We saw this with the, remember the man let down through the roof. He didn't tell him, go and show yourself to the priest, as he did the chapter earlier. He said, you're already at the high priest. Go and be healed. So this is that, again, recapitulated here. This woman, she uh, comes and she, uh, we're, we're told she had been suffered, verse 26, suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors has spent all she had. And this is where the historians are such a gift to the church. Because some historian has actually discovered first century medical manuals. And they've also uncovered, archaeologists, they've uncovered uh, particular uh, solutions, like, you know, the, I'm not sure what they call it today, but like the Merck's Manual, whatever, their version of that in the first century, where they give you the prescriptions for various ailments. So we have now discovered there were uh, three, I'm sorry, four uh, doctors' uh, suggestions for what to do if a woman comes to you with an issue of blood. One, give her a goblet of wine containing powder from rubber and alum and crocuses from the garden. Make her drink it." Okay. Thank you. Another one, Manuel said, take Persian onions, cook them in wine, and then have the doctor say as she uh, eats the Persian onions, arise from your flow of blood. Third, Manuel suggests, the only answer is a sudden shock this is the famous shock treatment. It goes way back. <laughs> this is what you got when you open your syllabus this semester. <laughs> You'll take care of a lot of things. A fourth one suggests, boil and burn an ostrich egg down to ashes and carry the ashes around in a cloth. Now, this does illuminate a lot of this text when it says, she spent all she had and did not get better. All right? This is, a, you know, we're kind of in quack territory here. But this is the kind of thing she was in. No help, no hope, no healing. So in the midst of this crowd, she decides that she is going to reach out and touch the cloak of his garment. Because she thought, verse, verse 28, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. So she makes her way through the crowd. And she reaches out And just before she touches the hem of his garment, I want us to push the pause button and just stop a minute and think about what's happening here. This is where you you have to bring in your Old Testament knowledge a bit. In the Old Testament, if an unclean person touches a clean person, what happens? Right. I couldn't hear you, but I'm sure you're right. The clean person becomes unclean. All right, that's the way it works. Uh, Remember Haggai chapter 2 says, you know, they they have this hypothetical situation. If a person is carrying consecrated meat in the fold of his garment, and that that, that, uh, meat touches against some stew or some bread or wine or oil food, does that food become clean? They say, no, 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 no. Well, what about the other way? What if uh, you're having something consecrated and something... Uh, you know, clean touches that, uh, having unclean food, clean touches that, does it become clean? No. So if clean touches unclean, then clean becomes unclean. If unclean touches clean, then clean becomes unclean, right? It never happens any other way. That, again, this is the motif, post-fall motif. Everything in the human history is about becoming unclean. That's the whole nature of the fall. It spreads to the whole human race. Everything gets mixed by that, hit by that from Adam on. And so what we see when this woman reaches out is what you would expect to see. All that will happen is that Jesus becomes unclean. But here we meet the great reversal. Two great reversals in this text. This is the first one. Uh, When she touches the hem of his garment... What happens? She becomes clean. The whole thing is reversed. This is, of course, one of the great motifs of Christ. He's reversing the effects of the fall. And so that, those of us that are unclean now in Christ can be made clean, hallelujah. This is the, one of the great themes that Mark brings out. And this is, this is the other point. Okay, here we are. She's touched in this garment. She's instantly made clean. They're in this huge crowd. Picture the Super Bowl. You know, you're pressing yourself in or pressing into Estes Chapel. <laughs> <laughs> Crowds pushing and shoving to get in. <laughs> the night before the latest release of, an, you know, the latest, you know, the, uh, the, the nice iPad or the iPhone 4S. How about that? People lined up, you know, in their tents the night before. They opened the doors and people rushing in. This is that kind of press. If you haven't lived in the Eastern world, you you really don't understand crowds. What can happen when you get caught in a crowd? So this woman is in this crowd and they're pushing and shoving. And she touched him with his garment. And what does Jesus do? He stops and says, who touched me? Now, if you're trying to get into the Super Bowl, to get to seat, you know, upper deck E6, and you were suddenly were to turn and say, who touched me, the reaction would be kind of like Peter's reaction. Master, you're crazy. Well, it doesn't say that exactly. <laughs> but the disciples say to him uh, in, in, the, in the parallel text, um, you know, Master, look at the crowds. How can you say, who touched me? And this, this again, we're, we're revealing even subtly here the majesty of Jesus. Jesus is the most sensitive man who ever lived. Oh, what a great pastoral theme here as well. That when we walk through the world, you know, so much of our lives, the whole of our lives are a bunch of accidental contacts, kind of pushing and shoving our way through life. And here's Jesus walking through the world at three miles per hour, and he notices when a woman who is with an issue of blood, who is unknown, unnamed, unbiographed, no title, no position, touches the hem of his garment. Wow. What happens when people come to the edges of our lives, our churches, our ministries? Who touched me, he said. Disciples, of course, were on a one-stop mission. Jesus going to the important man's house. Jesus could be interrupted. He tells her, declares her the good news. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Now you realize that at this moment, when this woman is having the gospel declared to her, go in peace, go in God's shalom, you're now not under the ravages of the evil one. You've been declared clean and whole and and healthy and in the fullness, the pleroma of God. At that very moment, Jairus' family is in his house asking, why hasn't God showed up? Their daughter has died. I mean, again, can't you feel the pastoral side of this whole thing? That In life, life is filled with situations where some receive these answers to prayer and the testimonies are given and you're thinking like, wow, I don't have that testimony. I'm still waiting on God. Jairus' family waited on God and they thought it was all over with. But then, Jesus, once again, Mark teaches us, Jesus always has the last word. And many of us have to remember that through difficult times, that even though we don't have a current word from God for our current situation, God always has the last word, doesn't he? And so this woman, uh, he comes down, and of course the daughter is there. And Jesus said, "Don't be afraid; just believe." Verse thirty-six. And he uh, lets James and John and come into the room with them. And they, uh, he announces again to this little girl, "Talitha Little girl, get up. People were laughing, thinking, "What is he doing?" But instead, Jesus again, the great reversal. He is the resurrection of the life. He reverses even death itself. Again, a nice anticipation of the resurrection itself. In this passage, we are learning about the dignity of Jesus Christ. And I think in all, all, so many things come to light that help us in our ministries, in our lives, in our future. For example, remember in the Old Testament, when they, they were instructed in the law, when they planted their fields, don't harvest to the edge of your crop. Do you remember that? Don't harvest to the edge of your crops. Just harvest, but leave the edges. Why? For the poor, for the needy, those who are suffering. The whole point being that when the poor, the alien, the outcast, come to the borders of Israel, they come to the helm of Israel's garments, they come to the edge of the field, they find a blessing. They find good news, proclaimed. them. Just coming to an Israelite field, you're already receiving the blessings of God. Because they wouldn't harvest to the edge of their fields. What happens when people come to the edges of our lives? They find ragged edges, or do they find blessing, find healing, find ministry, find grace, find joy... This is the gospel. This is what we are to embody in our lives, in our ministries. And the great thing about Jesus is that I don't think he ever went faster than three miles per hour. That's, the, that's this pace of walking. Here we are. Last year, I traveled a quarter of a million miles by airplane. And who knows how many by car? Mostly going very fast speeds, usually over the speed limit. <laughs> I have a very heavy foot. I'm still working on that. (laughs) And the miracle, the former police haven't picked me up between home and work. (laughs) They see me coming and say, Get out of the way. Here he comes. (laughs) But Jesus redeems the entire world at three miles per hour. This semester, you'll be tempted in a thousand ways to become harried and rushed and, and just all of life, even courses, accidental contacts. May this be a semester where you walk through in the dignity of Jesus. Learn for his peace, his shalom, to abide in your life. And learn to walk before him these days in a way that those who come upon our lives and touch us will find a blessing. Thanks be to God. Amen. At this time, we have the happy uh, joy of installing Dr. Marilyn Elliott as the new Vice President for Community Formation for Asbury Theological Seminary. Uh, Dr. John, uh, Reverend John David Walt, of course, has served us very faithfully and will continue to serve us as he takes on the full uh, task and responsibility of the seedbed and also our external. a certificate program that we're developing, so he'll be focused more on our external audience, external ministries, and uh, Dr. Marilyn Elliott will be taking on the role of community formation and serving on my cabinet. So Dr. Elliott, we're so thankful for you and accepting this position and we'd like to uh, have a moment here to uh, install her. I want to begin with a charge and then later I'll just want to alert to Steve. Where is Steve? I see Steve somewhere. Are you up there, Steve? There you are, Steve. I want Steve to come forward uh, toward the, after the charge, and we'll have prayer, and also anybody else on the Community Formation team who's here today. Uh, Marilyn, I charge you to faithfully serve this community as Vice President for Community Formation. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we do wrestle. And Satan has a strategic objective to destroy and shipwreck every ministry, every life, and every marriage in this community, whether in Wilmore, Orlando, or our extended learning community. Tares are being sown, lions are roaring, and Satan still deceives. May you daily put on the full armor of God. May you be girded with the belt of truth, the shield of faith, and the helmet of salvation. May the sword of the Spirit be in your hand, and may your feet be clothed with the gospel of God's peace and the great shalom which awaits us all. And may you also not only do the ministry of helping us to avoid the wiles of the evil one, but to build what it means to be a community formed in the image of God and marked by the new creation. May you have the heart of a shepherd, the wisdom of Catherine of Siena, the determination of Deborah, and the prayer life of Monica. If you do that, you'll be all right. (laughs) And the personality of Marilyn Elliott.